0: Welcome to Abby and the Mustangs. This podcast connects Mustang lovers everywhere and sparks conversations in an effort to promote the adoptions of American Mustangs. I'm your host, Abby Condi. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Abby and the Mustangs. So for this episode, this is going to be really fun, and actually I'm very excited to hear from uh, Stephanie Boyles Griffin, who is the Senior Scientist for the Wildlife Protection Department at the Humane Society of the United States. For more than 20 years, she has worked with the federal and state agencies, non-governmental agencies, uh, municipalities, I have a really hard saying, Mun- municipal, like, I can't even say that word um, to begin with, so anyways, and we're going to move on from that, <laughs> um, corporations and communities to develop and implement humane, effective, and sustainable wildlife management management policies and programs, and she also serves as a commissioner on the Maryland Wildlife Advisory Commission, which is really cool, so she is just a wealth of information, and I'm really excited for us to get to dive into an interview with her and just talk about um, the wild horses and kind of what um, work she does with them um, and just any insight that she has on some of the questions that I have for her. So um, we're just going to get right into it. Well welcome to the show Stephanie. I'm really excited to have you here this week um, for this episode. So to start out could you just introduce yourself and kind of what your um, position is and what your job is and what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Abby. Um, so uh, I'm Stephanie Boyles Griffin. Uh, I'm the senior scientist at the Humane Society of the United States Wildlife Protection Department. Um, my role at HSUS is to provide our staff with uh, science support for all of our different wildlife protection campaigns and programs. Um And then I also serve as the science and policy director for the Bodstever Institute for Wildlife Fertility Control. And in my role there, um, I I work with our managing director, Monique Principe and the rest of the staff to promote and advance the field of wildlife fertility control through public education. Um, So that is a partnership between the Bodstever Foundation that's based in Media, Pennsylvania and the Humane Society of the United States. So I, I kind of wear two different hats, uh, the one at HSUS and the one through HSUS, with uh, the Bodsever Foundation.
0: Wow, um, very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what kind of made you want to go into um, conservation and, you know, the, obviously the science side of mm-hmm. um, all of this in the first place?
1: So, um, for the past 20 years, I've been working in sort of an emerging field of wildlife management uh, known as uh, human wildlife um, uh, conflict mitigation and coexistence. Um, So I've been working with, uh, you know, individuals, community associations, and in state federal agencies to uh, help develop humane, effective and sustainable wildlife mitigation uh, programs. So whenever there's conflicts between humans and wildlife, whether it's something as basic as a raccoon getting into somebody's uh, fireplace, (laughs) or um, in what we're gonna be talking about today, uh, trying to mitigate the very complicated issue of managing uh, federally protected wild horses on our uh, public lands that are mandated to be used as multi, multi multi-use. So, um, I've done just an array of different, um, human wildlife mitigation, uh, programs in my past. I did my master's on mitigating conflicts between beavers and, uh, humans, um, uh, in my, in my master's program with a, a partnership with the Virginia Department of Transportation, um, you know some of the animals that we focus on in our urban wildlife program here at HSUS are coyotes, beavers, uh, urban waterfowl, and um, uh, uh, and deer. So, um, just that's just a very tiny bit of of what me and my colleagues work on uh, with respect to human wildlife conflict mitigation at HSUS.
0: Right, and so how long have you, like, when did you start, um, or when did, I guess, HSUS um, begin working with BLM with the Wild Horses and Burrows?
1: Oh, that's, that was a long time before I (laughs) joined the organization. Right. So I joined the organization in 2007. Okay. um, And um, they had already had a very active Uh, urban wildlife program at that time. They had also been working um, um, on the wild horse issue, well, really since almost the the inception of HSUS back in the 50s. Um, If you read books about the history of the wild horse protection campaign, uh, just generally like when you go back and read about Wild Horse Annie and all those folks, um, you know, HSUS has had a presence in this, in this, um, in this realm for a while, mm-hmm. um, so when they actually started working on, you know, promoting fertility control as one of the ways that we can suppress wild horse and burrow population growth rates on the range, I want to say that, to the best of my knowledge, that probably started in the 80s okay but really didn't pick up momentum into the uh, 90s now there were researchers back in the 70s starting to work on this as soon as the the wild horse and Burrow protection act was passed in 71 Mm-hmm. Um, so those are people like Jay Kirkpatrick and John Turner. Jay Jay is no longer with us, sadly. Uh, John Turner um, continues to work on this issue along with another colleague of mine, Dr. Alan Rutberg with Tufts University. So it was John and Jay and and others that started first thinking about the idea of using fertility control agents to try to suppress population growth rates in in wild horse populations back in the 70s but they didn't actually start doing that actively they didn't really have agents that they could start trying in real world field settings i think until the late 80s
0: Wow, and so from then until now, how would you say the um, their efforts have progressed? I mean, from what I've seen, there's I think there's a lot more um, public, uh, I guess, um, knowledge on it. I mean, everybody's kind of aware that you know that they're trying to use fertility control in the form of like a, a contraceptive. So, how would you say it's doing now?
1: Well, I mean, there certainly is not just greater awareness, public awareness, as you just said, mm-hmm. in using fertility control to manage wild uh, horses and burrows, but also a greater acceptance of it as being a critical tool mm-hmm. um, for managing them at not not just as a standalone tool, but something that can be used in uh, in, in coupled with uh, strategic gathers. And right. So that's the message we're really trying to convey to the public and to policymakers is that gathers alone. And fertility control alone are not going to get us where we need to go. We need to be using both together simultaneously and strategically in order to stabilize wild horse populations in these remote, rugged uh, western landscapes, and then to see them start to go down over time. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that because that was mainly one of the points that I took away from our last phone call um, was that you had said that that the two need to work hand in hand. And it makes total sense to me because obviously before I'm thinking, OK, well, the horses have to come off the land. And I'm sure, you know, the BLM staff, you know, that's kind of the um, I guess the mindset that everybody's familiar with is, OK, we have mm-hmm. to get the horses off um, the you know fertility control. OK, it's being used, but blah, 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 whatever, whatever. But it does make sense, you know, from what you were saying that they too need to work hand in hand because of, I'm guessing, you know, environmental influences on the horses and um, Uh different things like that. Because even if you take off a bunch of horses off the land, they're still going to breed back. I mean, I've seen yearlings at holding pens that are pregnant, you know, I mean, they will they will breed back and there are so many mares out there that every single one of them is going to have a baby, you know, even if they already have one at their side. It's really sad. So, right. um, so yeah, that's, that's kind right. of what I wanted to dive into, um, was more of the, um, what is it called, the PZP and different um, uh, contraceptives that they're using and trying to do. So, what, um, what, what is your role, I guess, in all of this? Like, what have you been working on, I guess? I don't know if that's the right question to ask. Um, okay. <laughs> but, um, it
1: might be good to tell people what's been done already what's already available and kind of move into what some of the new methods that aren't being used right now but there's research being done to see if they may be um you know some some uh, methods that could be used in the future. Absolutely, you know, it's really important first of all for folks to understand that there are 177 at least HMAs, these herd management areas that are managed by the BLM that have wild horses on them in the United States, and they're 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 divided up into 10 states. And all of those HMAs are completely different one from one another. Some of them have things in common, but all of them are very different. And so if we're going to use fertility control um, to suppress population growth rates, we have to have a lot of different tools. It's not a one-size-fits-all sort of situation out there in the West. Uh, when you're trying to manage wild horses so it's really important for us to have lots of different tools nobody's going to come up with the one that's going to save the day here but if we have a lot of different ones to use that we can use in conjunction with one another or separate for different HMAs that's really important so I'm saying that so that you understand that some of these will work better in some in some contexts than others mm-hmm. so the first one is the one that probably most people are are most familiar with because there's been more research done on this one than any other, and that's porcine zona pellucida. So that's an immunocontraception vaccine called, also referred to as either PZP, uh, native PZP, or Zonostat H, which is its brand name um, as it was registered um, with the Environmental Protection Agency for use in wild horses and burros. And so that is a one-year vaccine. Um, it requires it can be either hand injected into a mare or it can be uh, uh, delivered via remote opportunistic darting. It requires a primer dose, followed two weeks uh, at least two weeks later by a booster. And then from that point forward, in order to maintain, maintain infertility, you would have to boost that mare once a year. So for areas that are really that have highly approachable and accessible mares, this is more than, more than um, um, acceptable as a means of managing uh, a small, approachable, accessible herd of wild horses. So some of the places that PCP has been used for quite some time are herds that that, animal, that people are often familiar with, which is Pryor Mountains in Montana, um, the uh, McCullough Peaks in uh, Wyoming, um and then little book cliffs in colorado uh it's also being used in sandwash herd management sandwash basin herd management area in colorado and a bunch of other ones i don't want to leave any out but um so there are a lot of herds where you can do this it's also being used in barrier islands off the east coast of the united states and places like assateague which was where it was first tested Mm -hmm. and shown to be an effective way of doing it the problem is that in these remote landscapes in the western United States where most of these animals exist, it's not necessarily feasible to get to a mare every year to boost her once you get the the primer and the the initial booster into her. So researchers began trying to find ways to create longer-acting, one-shot injection, uh, multi year vaccines. And so two of them that are available now are PZP-22, which is basically Zonostat H uh, coupled with uh, uh, time release uh, pellets that can serve as boosters. So once you inject them air with with the Zonostat H plus the the time release pellets, um, those pellets will release the PZP at 3, 6, and 12 months. So they kind of serve as a booster so you don't have to go and find her. They're going to release on their own within the mare once she's been treated with it uh, so you don't have to go and find her. Mm-hmm. And... That initially can give you pretty good efficacy from two to three years, but you know BLM really wants something that works three to five. The good news is if you go and find that mare two to three years later and just boost her with a with a, an administration of zonastat H, you can get three to five years of efficacy after that, mm-hmm. and maybe longer. Right. So it's not the one shot three to five that BLM is looking for, but is certainly um a great alternative to zonostat age if you need something that's going to last longer than one year. Again, works great in places where you can approach and, and access those mares. Um but if, if, if you're working with an HMA where those animals are very difficult to access, then then using something like PCP twenty two might be the way to go. Gonacon is a third uh, vaccine that, um, like PZP-22, in order to really work, it, you know, optimize its efficacy, you have to boost the animal again two to three years after their initial uh, inoculation. But again, like PZP-22, it's really worthwhile to do it because you can get three to five and maybe more years of efficacy after you do that. So, um, there, if, if, any of your listeners are interested in learning more about those three vaccines, ZonaStat H, PZP22, and Gonicon, uh, the Bod Institute for Wildlife Fertility Control has a great fact sheets called, I think, Immuno- Immunocontraception in Wild Horses, and they can read all of the studies. There's a literature cited on all the studies that have been done to show how these three vaccines can be used best to, um. To manage wild horse populations as they're currently used, right? So yeah, um, so those are the ones that we we have available to us now that we can use, and that we hope that the BLM will do more of. Um, but uh, there's always room for improvement, And right. So there are a couple of other concepts that are that are on the horizon that VLM is currently uh, studying to see if they could scale it up in a, in a real-world situation. So one of them are inter-uterine uh, devices, so IUDs. Mm-hmm. There was one that was developed by, I believe it was Oklahoma State, that is a Y-shaped device um, that has shown some promise. There's also a really cool one that are three um, uh there are three magnets that self-assemble inside the mirror once you um, once you implant them. And uh, really, really clever device. These are both uh, being studied at this time. I think the, the Oklahoma State study has been wrapped up, but they're still working on the self-assembling uh, uh, magnet um, IUD. But the good thing about these is that they can be, they can be inserted. And it's reversible because if you gather the animal, uh, you can simply just safely and humanely remove the device. Mm-hmm. The important thing is making sure the device stays inside. So it's the they think that they can work. The important thing is once you release that mare on the range, what's the percentage of mares where the device is going to stay in place um, until you remove it but because you want to you know that you right. bring the mare off the side and you want her to have a few years where she's contributing to the gene pool there to keep the genetic pool there healthy mm-hmm. um so that's those that's one concept another concept that's being uh tested right now um in Nevada through the National Wildlife Research Center, I believe, um, I think Colorado State University may be involved as well. And that's an oocyte growth factor study. So this is another um, fertility control vaccine that could um, potentially act as a permanent form of sterilization, uh, chemical sterilization. We're not really sure yet the um, the preliminary data suggests it could be, really won't know for another three or four years when they um, start producing some preliminary results, whether or not this vaccine is going to be just a longer-acting vaccine or something that in some mares is a, a permanent um, sterilant, chemical sterilant.
0: Right. Now, I had a question about if they still, um, I know that they used to surgically spay mares. Is that a practice that is still happening or still on the table? I I assume, because how I'm sure it's extremely invasive and very expensive to do um, on Uh each individual mare, I'm sure they're trying to move away from that. Is that still an active thing?
1: That is actually something they haven't done. So the BLM has not done surgical sterilization of mares. Mm -hmm. I think gelding has been a common practice. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that they have made um, using... um, surgical sterilization for instance ovariectomy a means of managing horses Um, Mm -hmm. but just recently they proposed doing so at the Confusion herd management area in Utah and um, for your listeners to know the HSUS just sent a letter to Secretary Bernhardt last week and then sent out a press release uh, this week um, stating that though we support the Humane Society of the United States and the Humane Society Legislative Fund, that that we support the Bureau of Land Management's efforts to explore additional on-range solutions for the humane management of wild horses and burros, our organizations are adamantly opposed to the use of surgical sterilization of mares. Mm -hmm. And um, it's for some of the reasons that you talked about. Um, We just think that the BLM should be using its resources on these uh, other safe, humane fertility control vaccines um, instead of continuing to focus on surgical sterilization because... um, Number one, there's not been any any study done by the BLM to show that it can be done in um, a safe and humane manner. Um, it's not practical for a wild horses, for instance, to be kept in stalls for several days, which is required in the procedure that they're proposing, which right. is ovariectomy, uh via uh, colpotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that to. This is to reduce the chance of evisceration as well as monitoring these animals for 24 to 48 hours. And it's not just us. You know, the, the BLM commissioned a report from the National uh, Academy of Sciences. And when, they're, when, the, N, when the NRC reviewed this, uh, this procedure, they acknowledged that the care requirements typically followed would not be feasible for wild mares. Uh, mm-hmm. He stated that domestic mares are, are typically, for instance, cross-tied to keep them from standing for 48 hours post-surgery to prevent, like I said, evisceration through the incision. This may be impossible with mm-hmm. free-ranging mares that have never been handled by humans. And the NRC also noted that it is likely that, as a result, the fatality rate may be higher than what would have been observed in domestic mares and domestic mares, it's already kind of high. It's, it's 21%. Right. So because of these risks that it's a complicated procedure is risky. It's also painful. You know, it's generally known to be a painful procedure for the mares. They acknowledge that it's risky complications can include pain and discomfort, as you can imagine, but also injuries to the cervix, bladder, bowels, um, potential for the development of hematomas adhesions Mm -hmm. and then after you know post-op chronic pain and then as we said possible evisceration so another reason there's only one veterinarian that we know that has um, some experience doing this procedure in wild mares so even if the research supported the use of this um, there's simply not enough veterinarians trained to perform the procedure for this to be used on the scale that would be useful to BLM for managing wild horses. I mean, there are over 90,000 of them mm-hmm. out on the range. Absolutely. Um, so, for all of these reasons, you know, like I said, we are committed to helping to grow the number of tools that the BLM has in its toolbox. It's one of the reasons that we're supporting research that's being conducted by Purdue University to develop a recombinant, synthetic, and longer acting formulation of the. For uh, vaccine, and that's why we're currently working with them to do this feasibility study on the use of PZP to manage wild burrows in um, the Black Mountain herd management area in northwestern Arizona. So we are we are committed to help to, to being part of the solution. Um, but this is something that we feel like is not a productive use of time and limited resources and that um, the BLM should be focusing on these on these vaccines that are being underutilized at this time and are currently available to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how would you say that um, the relationship between the HSUS and the BLM is re- in regards to, obviously... Um, working with the contraceptive, um, the con- different contraceptives of what they can use in their resources, like you said before. Um, but beyond that, I know that you have, that you attend some meetings with BLM. I know, um, since we had talked about that in our last phone call, um, but I'm just curious myself to hear again, um, what the relationship is between you guys, um, I guess, work-wise or, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, I guess.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, just remember, and that's not, you know, not just with BLM, but there are a whole diverse group of external stakeholders that have different opinions and perspectives Mm -hmm. on how... Wild horses and burros should be managed. BLM is no different, and neither are we. I think what's really important is for us to all be able to have uh, a good, transparent, open, and honest dialogue about these things, so we can understand where where everyone's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the the HSUS has been working. Um, for several years with a diverse group of stakeholders to develop and promote a plan called the Path Forward. It's a proposal on the care of wild horses and burros on BLM lands that we feel like offers a humane and non-lethal plan for sustainably managing the, these animals um, for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um it's comprehensive. It's uh, gained traction with lawmakers across the political spectrum. It relies on safe, humane, proven on rain fertility control methods, but at greater scale than, of course, than they're being used at this time. But it also takes surgical sterilization and things like um, horse slaughter and um, sale without limitation off the table, but it, it scales up strategic gathers coupled with the use of, of currently available fertility control tools like Zonestet H, PZP22, Gonicon, until some of these other uh, um, uh, methods that may be longer acting and more effective are available.
0: Right. So, that, what goes hand-in-hand, hand, like we were saying earlier, with the um, contraceptives and the PZP, Gonicon, all of that, mm-hmm. um, is a, um, also a mix of gathering these horses at the right time. So, right. Um, I think it would be really useful if we could explain, or if you could explain, just the different forms of, um, I guess, different methods of gathers, um, of mm-hmm. like the trapping and the, um, the use of the helicopters and things like that, and then just your opinion on it, because um, I do remember that we talked about the helicopters before, and I do want to go over that definitely again. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I don't know which, which which one's the first one you would like to start with, but I know there's a different list.
1: Well, I think it's good to put everything into context first and then start uh, working our way through some of the methods that are currently being used and available. So every year, as you say, the BLM conducts Wild Horse and burrows gathers. Some people refer to them as roundups mm-hmm. um, to remove the um, to remove animals or to apply fertility control, as we've been discussing, mm-hmm. to conduct approved research projects, um, to relocate uh, animals to other HMAs. That's not really commonly done now, but it has been done in the past. Uh, to do introduce animals to other HMAs, to adjust sex ratios, to manage non-reproducing herds, to treat sick or injured animals, um, to conduct diagnostic testing, mark animals for identification, manage herd characteristics, or in some cases to respond to a life-threatening or an emergency situation. So it's really important for people to understand that gathers are not just conducted when animals need to be removed. They're they're done for lots of different reasons.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and was with as with most wild animals, any effort to capture or handle, or restrain or transport wild horses and burros, no matter how carefully planned and executed, this is going to inevitably cause a certain amount of stress and um, and discomfort for the animals involved. These are wild animals; they're not used to being handled by humans. Right. Um, and in some circumstances when we do that and whether it's wild horse or burrow or any wild animal um there are there's a there's a chance that injuries illnesses and deaths even may be unavoidable even even when we're doing our best but that in no way reduces or minimizes the ethical obligation of those charged with managing wild horses and burrows to reduce and to the, ex- the greatest extent possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to minimize the physical and emotional anguish that these animals endure during gather operations, whether you're using helicopter drive gathers, bait trapping, or if you're simply trying to remotely and opportunistically dart them with a fertility control vaccine. Mm-hmm. Right. So one of the ways we, Um, we saw in the last 10 years that the BLM is making progress with trying to standardize when these, they use these gather operations and then how they do them is through the comprehensive animal welfare program. And um, while in thought, it's a great idea and it's certainly better than what they had before, which was nothing that, 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 Position to run that program has remained vacant for a while. Wow! And during um, the free roaming equids and ecosystem sustainability summit that was held in Cody, Wyoming, this past this past October, there was discussion about some urgency in getting that position filled because it's kind of hard for somebody to, for for BLM to be held accountable for doing the right things according to their own standards if there's not somebody in charge of making sure that happens Mm -hmm. and enforcing it and holding people accountable and then looking for ways to improve it at all times. um, So that's number one, is that uh, there has to be a comprehensive animal welfare program in place so that they can have a good start and know everybody's doing the same things for the same reasons and that there's a process in place to constantly be tweaking it to make it better and better as New technology comes available for us to use. For instance, I mean, it's possible we could be using drones eventually to gently herd animals into areas where we need to treat them with fertility control vaccines and release them. So, um, so something to keep in mind. But the there there are three there are two major ways that gathers are conducted right now. One is through helicopter drive gathers, and the other is through bait trapping. Bait trapping can be done with water if you're in a particularly hot and arid uh, part of the country, which is where a lot of our wild horses and burros exist. And it's a time of year where they're going to be particularly attracted to water when water everywhere else is scarce. Mm-hmm. So that's a particularly effective way to draw in, for instance, like burros. Burros are commonly uh, uh, gathered via bait trapping. Um and then we found out a couple of years ago at a Wild Horse and Borough Advisory Board meeting that uh, BLM is starting to use bait trapping as a more common way to uh, gather horses. Um, so when I started working with, with on this issue, it wasn't a very common practice. It was something we were encouraging the BLM to look to do more of because um, – because it, it, we considered it to be a, a far better way of doing it uh, than helicopter drive gathers and that they should only be doing helicopter drive gathers as a method of last resort and then, of course, adhering to some sort of comprehensive animal welfare program while they're doing that. So it's good to hear that the BLM is starting to expand efforts to use bait trapping. Um, but, of course, the, the, the helicopter drive gathers... Um, in order to conduct fertility control programs effectively in these really remote, vast, rugged, remote HMAs that exist where you've got thousands of wild horses living and that these are not animals that are highly approachable or accessible. um, There may be no other way to gather a high enough proportion of the horse population out there to treat enough of them so that you're going to have a population-level impact on population growth. Um, but as I said before, if they're going to do them, there has to be standard operating procedures that are enforced to make them as humane as
0: possible. Mm-hmm. And consistent as well. Um, because There's got to be quality control
1: and yeah. enforcement, and accountability. And one of the things that makes that difficult is that BLM contracts out for uh, for gathers um, through private contractors that have their own teams that do this. And so the challenge is how to hold contractors accountable and have them adhere to the uh, the standards of the Comprehensive Animal Welfare Program, as it relates to conducting these helicopter drive gathers, mm-hmm. and, and that's those we—I mean—that's where we, as advocates, ha- have uh, in, in people that are uh, experts in handling uh, equids, uh, have a role to play in providing BLM and their contractors with um, guidance on how to constantly be looking for ways to improve. Uh, how these are are done so that we are minimizing, as I said, to the greatest extent possible, the chance and risk for injury
0: and um, unnecessary uh, death. Right, uh, that could that can occur in these in these gathers. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and just talking about the contractors, you're talking about. Um, I mean, those the contractors that they're hiring are the helicopter pilots, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So Not just, just to- the
1: pilots. There's usually a company that the pilot works for. Right. They're yes. Also the ones that mm-hmm. set up all the shoots. Right. They they work with the BLM to plan how where the animals are and how they're going to get them into the shoot so Mm -hmm. you know how you do that shoot has a lot to do with whether or not that animal uh, it potentially is going to be injured while you're in the process of, of removing them yeah so
0: um that definitely makes sense um because obviously everybody needs to be on the same page um when it comes to these gathers because they're so tricky and they are working with wild animals i mean i could imagine trying to herd a you know a herd of antelope into the way that we herd these wild horses and that would just be absolutely not good um so yeah there needs to be consistency definitely i totally agree with that um and so
1: yeah the other thing to keep in mind is even though that's what we have to work with right now you know we really hope that in time there will be methods for gathering these animals that may not involve helicopters this is what they're doing now and it can be efficient but there may be like i said it's not out of the realm of possibility that people that are much smarter than i am will come up with ways of luring animals to areas that is very efficient and effective and allows us to get to them without having to move them across these these rugged landscapes Mm -hmm. um uh you know two two things that i often witnessed um, when I was at uh, Helicopter Drive Gathers is um, the importance of uh, when you do them. You know, uh, what, what's the temperature outside when you're doing these? How long is an animal being pushed before that's enough? You know, mm-hmm. if you haven't gotten them to go towards the shoot at that point, when do you tell a pilot to back off that clearly the animal is lathered and, and or they're full, maybe having a problem keeping up? Those kinds of things. And they should be common sense to people that work with wild horses, but you can't just rely on common sense. It needs to be codified in some way in a manual on how to do these things. So as you said, they're consistent in applying this um, across all all HMAs when they're conducting these types of gathers.
0: Yeah, and so when before... BLM can even uh, conduct a gather. I know that, I think I asked you this question before, and you are like, whoa, it's a long story, um, but what are, like, the factors that you, as a scientist, or you know, the range scientists down, you know, in BLM, what do they look for in an HMA where you know, okay, like, the animals have to be gathered? Obviously, one would be that the HMA has reached its appropriate management level or ex- or has exceeded it, um, but just for the listener's sake, I mean, what, what would be um i guess uh, do you understand my question i guess i'm not um i kind of ramble when i um
1: well i just don't want to lead um listeners uh to the conclusion that i'm the one making these decisions right I'm
0: absolutely, absolutely not. yeah 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 um,
1: blm is the one that makes these decisions mm-hmm. and they're generally made uh uh based on a plan a management plan that was already established through uh the national environmental policy act process nepa process okay um that states what the aml was that was established for that that range what it's at now all kinds of different surveys they do on uh, the range itself and the number of animal surveys they do on the number of animals that currently exist there and what the range looks like not just those animals but also wild and domestic grazers that are sharing that land with the horses in, in many cases mm-hmm. so um i can tell you you know th- those are some very basic things that go into i'm sure making the decision i just don't want people to under the impression that I'm the one that does, it's 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 a BLM staff that are uh, charged with making those decisions um, that that make them. Um, and they, like I said, there are 177 different HMA's out there, and all of them are different, and and all of the decisions that are made to manage them are somewhat different depending on what's going on on, on the land.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure, too, that the... We don't
1: always agree with it, you know, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the whole, that's why we're, we're, we are where we are on this issue is that there are a lot of people, as I said, that have a lot of different opinions mm-hmm. on how to manage wild horses, and then if you multiply that by the number of opinions on how to manage each and every one of those 177 HMAs... It's a lot of information. That's why I
0: said it would be a very long story. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like checks and balances, right? I mean, you can't just have um, one person or one organization or one um, agency uh, calling all the shots. Obviously, as is. Especially when we know that there's more out there and there's more resources um, for them to use. So it's really, I'm really glad to be learning all of these things from you. I mean, you're very good. Um, you're very good at kind of navigating the conversation here because it's really hard to know what questions to ask um, and where to even, you know, start on all of these issues because it is so complex than, um, or a lot more complex than people really understand. And even just going back to AMLs, I mean, one thing that I had learned from our last conversation is and it's so true is that even the amls cannot be accurate i mean if they were there if they're the same as they were 10 years ago there's no way that they're going to be the same i mean they can't be um they should be less i mean because the horses have still been out there um and still eating on the land and stuff so um it's very complex
1: people that that so when I first came to work on this issue, this was more than ten years ago. There are people that have been working on it obviously far longer than I have. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, and and I said I've been working on human wildlife conflict mitigation just generally for over twenty years. This is one of the most difficult issues I've ever worked on, (laughs) Uh, and it's because I don't think a lot of people really do understand the complexity of the human dimensions involved Mm -hmm. in the wild horse and, and burrow issue. And the fact that there is a diverse group of stakeholders that are all slowly but surely starting to find common ground on how we can make life better for the horses, the burrows and the land together as opposed to continuing to fight with one another is is truly the most promising thing that I have seen happen in this on on this issue. And then, of course, fertility control is is being more generally accepted, going back to the beginning of our conversation, more generally accepted as being one of the primary tools that has to be used in order for us to sort of right the ship and to get the population stabilized and to start to reduce them down to whatever the AML is out there right now. Mm -hmm. Because, like you said, yeah. Anybody that studies ecology knows that all of these lands that we we live and work on are in a constant state of flux. So a number that was chosen at whatever time, 10, 20 years ago, is bound to have changed because – that's what happens, and it, I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything untoward by stating that. That's just, for people that study ecology, that's common sense. Mm-hmm. Now, in those 177 HMAs, some may have changed more than others over time because of all of the other different variables that are at play here, including climate change, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> a big one. Yeah, That's a really absolutely. One, especially the fact these animals are are living in places that were dry to begin with; they're getting drier, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, uh, I, again, way above my intelligence to my my intelligence level to to figure all of that out. But I think it's safe to say that those numbers are constantly changing. They, in some places, as you said, they're probably going down, mm-hmm. and as opposed to being higher. Um, but in some cases they might be higher,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Um, it's important for us to have a consistent way to figure what that out, what that is and not waiting to every 10 or 20 years to figure out, you know, reassess. Um, so maybe that's one of the things that the BLM, uh, will be working on is, is there a way to maybe much more quickly determine what AML is from, from, from year to year, Mm -hmm. um, that is reliable, uh, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, take so long and it's such an arduous process, but it's still is still accurate. Um, yeah. because that's the, how how else are we supposed to know how to manage these animals appropriately if if we don't come to some agreement on what the land can sustain and uh, because we want these animals to be thriving on, on healthy rangeland.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And they and, you know, the other native species that live alongside them, they're at stake as well. It's not just for the horses. It's, you know, you have to look at the bigger picture, um, as well. So, um, in your opinion, I mean, we're, we're about to wrap up. We're almost to the end of our, of our session here, but, um, from, from my experience, I've kind of told people already what I think they could do to help. You know, if you have the means to adopt a wild horse, I mean, one less horse in the pen is going to be, you know, a space for another to come in and, and to be cared for, um, you know, humanely and to find, you know, purpose. Um, but what do you think, in your opinion from, you know, from the work that you've done, what should the general public, what could they do to kind of help on this issue?
1: Right. So something I already uh, mentioned, and that is encouraging members of Congress to support the path forward or a program like it. We don't pretend that that is the perfect plan. Mm -hmm. But something like it, I think given the discourse that we're having with this diverse group of external stakeholders um, from all walks of this of this issue, there is some version of this that consistently is the case. You know, mm-hmm. we have to find a way to incentivize adoption. So what you just touched on at the same time, we have to be doing modeling to show over time that all of these different HMAs, how we can couple strategic gathers with fertility control. And if fertility control, which one, which one is going to be working best for this HMA as opposed to another, or a couple of different ones we use together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so encouraging members of Congress to, um, um, to take an interest in this issue and to, per, to pursue and, and, um, and uh, advocate for BLM to implement a plan like that, if not a better one, um, is what we're telling people to do. That's, the, that's their, where their, their voice can be heard the loudest is by getting their, their members of Congress to take an interest and to uh, urge the BLM to implement this comprehensive approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what goes hand in hand in that is to also just get educated about the issues in the first Uh place so that you know what it is that you, you know, are supporting and that you're going to do the right thing that is in the, you know... um, best, uh, in the best interest of the horses, which is kind of where I'm at. I kind of like to keep in a neutral position until I can kind of uh-huh. figure out in my own, you know, my own mind, what do I think is going to be the most beneficial for them, um, and for the other animals that are out on the land. So, um, this has been very, like I said, even in the last conversation we had, I've, it's been very educational and I've learned so much from you. Um, and I really, uh, appreciate the phone call and for you to be on the show. Um, so is there anything else before before we go that you wanted to just kind of add or touch up on that you feel like we didn't get to go over anything like that
1: i just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners about this as you say education is probably the key uh factor in um in getting this program on a sustainable path um because ultimately um you know those public lands and the animals that dwell on them they're a part of every citizen in the united states and we all have a voice that we can use to say how we want those those animals managed mm-hmm. um and there is a lot of information out there and some is better than others. Um, uh, we try to keep as um, as factual as we, I mean, we, we we have a lot of fact-based fact sheets at the Bob Siever Institute on all of the different methods that are currently being used. HSUS has some great resources on their website um, and some other groups do as well, but um, if anybody ever, you know, wants to, uh, to check that out, I, I highly recommend they visit our website. Um, the Wildlife Fertility Control Institute is www.wildlifefertilitycontrol.org. And then you can go to the HSUS's website at www.humanesociety.org.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. And for the listeners, I'm going to get those websites and I'm going to put them on the um, podcast discussion forum on Facebook so that everybody will have access to them if you're interested on going on there and just taking a look, skimming through um, and learning a little bit more. Um, Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and Kelly again on whatever, whenever we pick a date for our next phone call. Sounds great. Thank you again for having me. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day. You do. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Crossbow Equine Services. Kylie Bowen, owner, founder, and CEO of Crossbow Equine, is offering services to coach you in your equine business needs. As a trainer and equine entrepreneur herself, Kylie has the knowledge from learning through past mistakes as an early business owner and knows the equine industry from the inside out. Equine sales marketing, leveraging social media, and helping you develop your brand are just some of the things that she does best when it comes to serving you and your horses. For listeners of this podcast, Kylie is offering a free 15 minute consultation call. You can contact her by email at crossbow equine llc at aol.com. That's crossbow equine llc at aol.com with the subject line Mustang 20. To get in touch and book your free equine business consultation, email crossbow equine llc at aol.com. Thank you. And now a message from one of our sponsors. Shelby's Homemade Creations, I, Shelby, started the small business in hopes of having a fun hobby and turning my little dream of having a small business into reality. In my online store, I sell an array of soaps and are all natural made from both glycerin and shea butter, based with essential oils added for scent and some health benefits. I do have a surprise coming this winter with a new base option. Candles are all made from all natural soy wax and the scents are all essential oils to help put a natural scent in the home without burning harsh chemicals that are in other candles. Candle melts, these are my favorites. I start with a soy wax base and add in the essential oils for scent and then dye for fun colors. These are then poured into little cartons and ready for their forever homes to be melted. I use this product daily. My wax warmer always has a new scent in it. New to the shop are bath bombs. They are all natural, started from scratch and scented with essential oils for a nice bath time aroma. Lastly, the newest addition to the shop is lip balms made from all natural beeswax. I start with melting the beeswax and then adding some coconut oil and essential oils then letting them dry in either a tube or a tin then they're off for their forever homes there is something for everyone at www.shelbyshomemadecreations.com there's a tons of scents ranging from sweet to savory one to fit each and every person now Shelby sent me some scents and some candle melts and by far my favorite ones have to be snickerdoodle and citrus paradise so head on over to www.shelbyshomemadecreations.com and find your scent and you will be pleased thank you so much. If you're interested in adopting a mustang or burrow or are looking for resources, please visit blm.gov programs and select the wild horse and burrow column to learn more. If you are not in the position to adopt, please share this podcast with a friend and start a conversation. If you would like to donate to our wild horses and burrows, please visit mustangheritagefoundation.org donate.